0: Day three of Streak Week on the Cincinnati and Dayton Sports Podcast. And in a minute, you will hear JT Sabo on episode 158. For those of you that are just coming onto this podcast, this is Streak Week, where from Sunday, June 14th until the 21st, there will be a new episode each and every day. Eight new episodes, eight great interviews. Now, those of you that might have podcasts or listen to a lot of podcasts, you might be asking yourself, why would you do something like this when you just sit on the interviews? And that's a very good question, but I don't like just sitting on interviews. I, I want to release them as quick as I can, and I got a little overzealous of my free time this weekend, but that's Okay. You know why? Because it's Street Week, and there are great interviews such as this one with J.D. Zabo. But first, a couple of quick words from the new network affiliate in 12-Ounce Sports. Hey folks, this is Lee W. Mowen of the Cincinnati and Dayton Sports Podcast, and I'm here to talk to you about my bookie. Since 2014, it's the place where you can bet on anything, anywhere, anytime. Get up to $1,000 on your first deposit bonus. Use the promo code 120ZSports. As well as sports betting, you can play some casino games, take in some live odds in Madden 20 and NBA 2K20, and even bet with Bitcoin. Visit mybookie.AG and use that promo code 12 OZ Sports. That's 12 OZ Sports. MyBookie. The industry's most rewarding loyalty program. Twelve Ounce Sports. Visit us at twelve ounce It's episode one fifty eight of the Cincinnati and Dayton Sports Podcast. Our special guest is J.T. Sabo, the former broadcasting voice of the Dayton Bombers and Dayton Gems, and currently an assistant coach with the Troy Trojans hockey team. We're talking plenty of local hockey and sports, J.T.'s career and other businesses, and more on episode 158. Welcome to the Cincinnati and Dayton Sports Podcast with Lee W. Mowen. This is a weekly podcast covering all sports in Cincinnati and Dayton, Ohio. From Lima to the Ohio River and northern Kentucky, from eastern Indiana to Madison County and all points in between. This is your source of local Cincinnati and Dayton, Ohio sports. Visit the com slash podcasts to find your favorite podcasting platform music created with the splash app time for another episode with your host lee w mowan and on the phone right now is jt zabo calling from troy jt how you doing tonight
1: i'm doing well lee uh hope everybody is doing well out there despite all of the craziness the last couple weeks uh I know uh, I'm certainly ready to get out from the quarantine and get back to to some regular life, I think.
0: Absolutely. So let's begin. JT, where are you from?
1: Well, I'm from Troy. Uh, I was born here in Troy, um, raised mostly in Troy. I I split my childhood between two hometowns, uh, Troy, Ohio, and London, Ontario, Canada, Um, and you know, coming back here, I think this is the, the third time uh, that I that I wanted to come back to Troy and started to raise a family and put down roots here in town. And I can't really think of anywhere else that I would want to be.
0: So you grew up in Troy and also London, Ontario, Canada. But when did you fall in love with the sport of hockey?
1: Oh, gee. um, <laughs> Yeah, there... <laughs> Uh, I like how you go right into it. eh? Yeah, yeah, no, Uh, it's been an interesting um, kind of a, a a start. I remember, you know, when I was five or six telling everyone, Oh, I I don't want anything to do with hockey. I I don't want to play hockey. I I, don't want, uh, don't want to do that. And then, you know, it ends up being, you know, a career at one point and, and a really uh, highlight on my life, but no, it's, it's a family business. And that was really what, um, the drive was for me, uh, mm-hmm. as I got older, as I started to kind of figure out, okay, what am I going to do with myself? I, I realized that, you know, that, that sports is really something that holds a lot of my family together. Uh, my father is from Hamilton, Ontario. Okay. Um, actually, Grew up in Grimsby, Ontario, which is a small town about the size of Troy, ironically, uh, that's right on Lake Ontario between Niagara Falls and Hamilton. Um, And I remember as a kid going to my grandparents' house, Nana and Popo, in Grimsby, and they had a beautiful house that was maybe – 500 feet from the water on Lake Ontario. And and I knew that we were at Nana and Papo's house, even when I was very young, because I could see across the lake on a clear day and I could see the tower and I could see Skydome in Toronto um, clear across the lake. And it's uh, one of the earliest memories that I have personally. Um, so I just couldn't escape it, Lee. I, I couldn't get away from hockey. There wasn't anything – um, that I could have done. Uh, my dad played professional hockey for for over ten years. Uh, my uncle was a professional hockey player. Um, there, there's that. Um, uh, there's something in the blood uh, that really draw uh, drove me to the sport. Um, so that yeah there's a lot of a lot of things working against me there when when i would say oh, i don't want to be a hockey player I, I don't want to do that um that 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 just wasn't gonna gonna be the case you know
0: can you remember when it switched over from i don't want anything to do with hockey to hockey 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 hockey
1: uh I don't think there was any one real genesis point for me personally. Uh, You know, growing up, I'd I'd watch Hockey Night in Canada with my dad, and we'd go downstairs and we'd play knee hockey in the basement. And, and, you know, the the, the house rule was whoever – um won the knee hockey game down in the basement got to make milkshakes before don cherry came on that was always our our big thing and miraculously my dad always uh fell apart there at the end of our games and and let me score the game winner so i was pretty pretty happy about that um no, for for me, you know, I, I can still distinctively remember my first skating lesson uh, at Carling Arena in London, um, screaming my head off, absolutely just bloody murder. My dad had found some some terribly old CCM uh, metal skates with with the metal runners, um, the red and white candy cane. Um, shoelaces from a play it again sports and this is probably 1990 91 maybe Mm -hmm. at the time did my first skating lesson sore I I never wanted to do it again Um, and ended up you know really starting to to take a liking to it got into a youth hockey program in London uh, briefly uh, before we moved to Troy Um, but it it was just one of those gradual is just part of life you know Um, it was a language that our family spoke Um, it was just something that you know my very first memory as a kid is of watching my dad play professional hockey and I was maybe six months old maybe Um, and I'm really blessed that I have some of these memories Um, but yes the very first thing I remember is seeing my dad play professional hockey uh, sitting on my mom's lap Um, and just kind of going from there it was it was pretty cool looking back on it
0: at what point did you decide that you wanted to be a hockey broadcaster <laughs> uh yeah well you you're kind
1: of hitting all the the tough questions here tonight that was really a, a that was a that was such a tough thing for me because you know i i was never a, a great hockey player and i and i knew it you know i, I wasn't the best skater i wasn't the hardest shot um you know and, and my heart just never was fully there to sit and shoot 100 pucks at, at a net every night you know i, I had other Goals, other ambitions. Um, hockey was just something that I really enjoyed, uh, and I enjoyed watching it as much as I did playing it, which is interesting. Um, as far as you know, growing up, I played on some some house league teams, some travel teams. Um, I would get frustrated easily, um, especially as the talent gap got a little higher. Um, so you know my last year of Bantam I led the league in penalty minutes and my very next season was my first season playing uh, varsity high school and I think I got two uh two minutes uh in the box so it was a uh a definite you know role changer when I was looking at my playing career but growing up I always had a passion for stuff outside of maybe just playing um I did a lot of refereeing for a while. Um, growing up as a kid and made some pretty good money at it and that was going to be really a focus of mine for a long time Um, that i knew i wanted to stay in hockey i i realized that that's that was going to be the the path for me to try and figure out where i could go with it and i also knew that it wasn't going to be as a player so pretty early on i had a good idea that maybe we should start looking at some other things that we could do to stay in the game, uh, stay relevant, stay active and have just as much, if not more fun with. Mm -hmm. Um, and at that, at that point officiating became uh, a real passion of mine. And I got to a point where I was getting pretty successful, getting pretty high up, uh, working on my skating, um, you know, making, like I said, some, some pretty decent coin for, you know, uh, a uh, kid in junior high and then in high school to the point where my senior year of high school, uh, I had already stopped playing and I had already started dabbling in some of the, the technical side, media arts. I was the, um, the theater AV geek in high school that would run the soundboard for all the high school plays and productions. And uh, so that was me. I, I volunteered at the local access station producing local TV shows that were just mind bogglingly amazing looking back on. Um, so that, that really was kind of my side of how can I take this newfound passion um, for media, broadcast technology, being in front of a camera eventually and, and merge it with my love of hockey and it came in, I believe it was my senior year of high school, where I had an opportunity to, uh, and a choice, really. I, I had a choice between pursuing officiating as a career and pursuing broadcasting as a career, and, and it came together almost at the same time, which is so rare. And I'm so blessed and fortunate now, looking back on how things played out um, I had an opportunity to to work for a a junior A club, a junior A team in their media and be their announcer, essentially. I had uh, also an opportunity and a personal invitation from Scott Brandt, who at the time was the head of the USA Hockey Official Development Program. Um, A personalized invitation from Scott Brandt to attend training camp for the ODP officials. And those are the USA hockey officials coming up through the ranks that they identify, hey, these are guys that we're going to work with and try and move them up, kind of kind of like the, the, the junior equivalent of, uh, of an official. And, and I had an opportunity to go to training camp, and uh, ultimately what would have happened is they would have put me in the North American League and, and maybe even the United States League uh, to work as a linesman. And at the same time, I also had an opportunity on the media side. And so it was really, a, for a 17-year-old kid, such an interesting time to make that choice. And that ultimately, I chose media. And I didn't attend training camp with the ODP. Um, I ended up doing, uh, I refereed one game in the North American Hockey League and you love stories and you love how the hockey world is so interconnected and it's such such a small world that uh you know the the two coaches of the one game in the north american hockey league i did ended up being mark frankenfeld now the commissioner of the north american hockey league that really personally in the last 10 years has taken junior hockey in the united states with usa hockey to a whole nother level he was on one bench and on the other bench screaming at me when i missed an offsides was john cooper now the head coach of the tampa bay lightning and it was such a surreal moment looking back on that um, without even realizing who was on the ice at that time Uh, it was the usa hockey under 18 national team that was in town that i ended up refereeing phil kessel was on the ice that night um when he was with the the uh, national team so it's amazing how small the world is uh when you talk hockey and i'm just very fortunate to be such a small part of that um that you know when i look back on it it, it was a an incredible opportunity that i had um that you know when you go media and broadcasting it it comes full circle Uh, as a, as a broadcaster in the East coast league, there were a handful of guys that were on the ice that North American league game. I referee that ended up being on teams that I would broadcast for. And we would have that commonality and we kind of reminisce about those. And and so it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun and it's taken me places that, you know, playing knee hockey on the floor in London, you'd never really imagine.
0: Just imagine if you followed the officiating uh, path anymore, then you wouldn't have been my boss in Troy with the Bruins. Oh, that's true.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and it's funny to think. Uh, I do think that I made the right decision uh, all those years ago. I, I think becoming a, a professional hockey broadcaster was um, was the right call i think that was what um, in a lot of regards that's the contribution that i could make to the game at that time um and i had a ton of fun with it and including you know working with you as a a fresh out of college you were still in college at the time i think you were still at wright state were you not
0: yeah that would have been my very last quarter so i was splitting time with the Bruins and also the college radio station. So
1: that's right. Yes. Yes. Uh, that's, that's how we lots met, of, actually, um, lots of good memories. And I remember, it's a funny story. I remember the very first time. So I ever heard your name, but it was sitting in the studio. I was doing an interview like this with WWSU mm-hmm. and I think it was 2007. Okay. 2007 2008 i was sitting with jeremy lance who at the time was the sports director there and he brought up uh that the station had been doing some of the raiders hockey games and and just casually name dropped your name and, and that kind of stuck out in my mind um, because i i like to meet other hockey announcers and you know if i can help mentor and give advice to guys and gals coming up through the ranks with whatever experience that i have Uh, i certainly like to do that Um, but yeah it was a right state there in the student union hall uh, sitting uh, it was after a bombers game in 07 Um, occasionally i'd go there after a game and uh, just kind of Rep the team, so to speak, do some PR work there on Wright State's campus since we played at Nutter Center. Um, So, like I said, it's a it's a small world, Lee. You're even included in that.
0: I know. How how crazy is it? I mean, with other sports, I mean, it could seem like a small world, but hockey is so intertwined. You mentioned Scott Brand; he was the GM of the Carolina Thunderbirds, especially Mm -hmm. when they won the FHL Cup a couple years back. Mm-hmm. I, I think he's with what the Columbus River Dragons now, something like that. I,
1: I couldn't tell you. I, I haven't really followed that whole circuit. Uh, uh, it's, it's difficult for me to, to figure out what day it is here lately. <laughs> <now>. <laughs> uh- I, with with the COVID going on, and you know, with, with having kids at home now, and and a little one, we've been pretty cautious throughout this whole um, thing. Just making sure that you know we, we don't want to let the little guys get sick, and, and so I I haven't been out much. <laughs> so I, I'm I'm still not sure what day it is today either, and and uh, at some point I'm sure somebody will remind me as we get back to normal.
0: Well, I the only reason why I know a day's are it's you know my interviews for my podcast and I keep them in track. If I don't, then I'm I forget. Like, oh yeah, you were supposed to be interviewed. Like, oops, sorry. (laughs) So, but can I tell you a story about uh, broadcasting Raider hockey?
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: So there was a time where I was uh, pretty rough, and I wasn't a very good hockey broadcaster. So. Much as uh, Gary Dickstein had to get me a copy of Hockey Rules, like a, a <laughs> Yeah, I. I, I saw
1: oh, Gary Dickstein. uh That's a name yeah. I haven't heard in a while.
0: Yeah, he's not at Wright State anymore. He's working Dayton City, Dayton City Schools, I think.
1: Well, he's got a bit of an in there.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I always like seeing him at Wright State Homecoming, uh, just because you know I announced the games there, but yeah i i wasn't very good at hockey broadcasting i slowly got better at it and i like to think nowadays i'm okay so
1: well everybody starts somewhere and this is exactly. something i i tell a lot of people and especially people that didn't grow up with, with you know the game of hockey mm-hmm. um a lot of people in our area you know don't don't really get to experience it until they're older and that's i think that's a shame and that's something that you know personally i would like to you know address at some point but uh yeah, for somebody that it's not used to the game to come into it, it it's such a challenge it's it's so unlike calling any other sport Absolutely. and and I've done I've done enough other sports to know that there there's nothing like calling a fast high tempo high energy hockey game um, you know baseball's completely different it's all about filling dead air football, you're working in eight-second spurts. It's basically the broadcast equivalent of a rodeo. Here's the snap. Hold on. Oh, there's five seconds, and we're off. You know, let's fill three and a half minutes of replay. Um, you know, which has its own challenges. Certainly, mm-hmm. um, basketball probably the closest that I've done to hockey, where it, it's a pretty consistent flow but it's a lot more repetitive. There's only a handful of positions, um, you know, handoffs. It's a pretty set sport. It really is. When you look at it, um, there's only a handful of things that each position can do that over the course of two and a half hours, trying to make it seem like all of these things are happening could be a bit of a challenge as well to do basketball. And, Probably the best that I've heard, and, and someone that I've I've really looked up to that I've been able to work with uh, is Chris Collins. You want to yeah. talk about that right state connection? Mm-hmm. I absolutely love tuning in and listening to to Chris call a Raiders game, and it's just his delivery of the basketball tempo reminds me so much of the cadence of a hockey announcer. <laughs> and just the flow it's even it's keel, but still has enough bombastic emotion in there to convey a big hit or a slam dunk or, or, a play that really gets excited, um, that not everybody has. And, and certainly I think Chris does a fantastic job. Um, and I know he's been on your show before. Um, he's a great person off the court. So,
0: um,
1: you know, I'm, I'm just happy to be in such good company here on this podcast. Uh,
0: he's the first one I got to interview during the quarantine when I finally decided, you know, why am I not interviewing people? I have plenty of time. So, but yeah, oh. Chris, uh, all class and definitely, you know, I never thought about it, but you're right. He's got a nice rhythm and flow when he calls a game and Yeah. I, I never...
1: Tell him, tell him I said that. He'll get a kick out of that. I, <laughs> I haven't to... talked to Chris since I left WHIO, so he'll, he'll get a he'll get a real kick out of uh, out of that. But but I mean it. It's it's the delivery. It's so professional, and it's so similar to how we try and call a hockey game, where there's a there's a flow, there's a rhythm to it. It's almost like, it's almost musical if you do it correctly.
0: Absolutely, it's calling a hockey game is, I think, one of the toughest sports to get right. And if you get hockey right, then you could broadcast just about anything.
1: (laughs) There's a lot of room for mistakes, especially on radio. There's (laughs) – but but it is is challenging. It it is, and and I think that's why I enjoy the sport as much as I do as a broadcaster because, A, every game is completely different. Uh, B, there's mistakes made – at every level, that makes it more exhilarating, um, and and being able to you know call fights like a ring announcer one second and you know talk about the uh, you know the Dayton Bombers kids uh, the kids club you know right after that is is something that you can only get in hockey. So I suppose that's that's unique too for people that enjoy that sort of thing.
0: Hey, there was a fight. How about this kids club? you know <laughs>
1: yeah, that that's a that's a true story by the way uh, <laughs> that was a that was a bombers game i remember it was uh 0708 season and i couldn't remember where we were but i'm pretty sure we were on the road at that time mm-hmm. um and our games at the time were on 980 am wone and i think Schlemmer was still there too Yep. Um, uh, I think that's when he was still there. So we were on O and E, and we were on the road somewhere. And our goon at the time was Britt Doherty, number three, and he was a good old Canadian boy, as uh, Don Cherry would say. And he his role was to fight, mm-hmm. and and he embraced that completely. And he was exactly what you would think um, a role player. Uh, at the double A level would be. And he was also the funniest guy off the ice too. He, he was just so full of personality at the time. Um, but I remember he would fight and he would be the guy that had that would have the big production. You know, we're gonna we're gonna square up after the face off and I'm gonna roll up the sleeves and I'm gonna make a big show of taking the bucket off and you know the gloves down and we're gonna we're gonna duke it out. And so you would see the fight developing well before. And and broadcasting for me, I spend almost as much time looking away from the puck as I do with the puck because I understand where the puck's going, how the breakouts are going, because I'm watching morning skate. I'm watching practice. I know how they're breaking out. Um, So I'm watching what's going on, you know, who's coming on the ice. I'm trying to keep up with line combinations if I can. Um, Not every broadcast position allows you a good vantage point for that, uh, at least in the minors. Um, So I'm watching all these things. So I see Brett come out. I think it was a retaliation for earlier, no call or something like that. Just police in the game business. Um, And he comes out. and, And so I call the fight and how i always like to call it is i would give the play-by-play of the fight mm. the people at home and, and at that time we were streaming on i think team line uh through the internet provider in 07. so you know Jordy uh, takes the bucket out he's gonna give it a right hook to the left side on the cheek they link back up grabs the sweater pulls it back up couldn't get it in time gives him a right a left mm. now a second right into the body And they go down, right? So the linesmen are breaking them up, and I realize up on the clock, and I looked out at my sheet that, oh, well, we stopped exactly on a media timeout. (laughs) And to my my disbelief, they blew the horn, which is protocol to let everyone know we're going to take a timeout. Red light came on at the penalty box that indicates uh, a media timeout at the time. So I just go right from – He's down Doherty wins the fight for the bombers
0: <laughs> and
1: we're gonna step aside 423 to go bombers ahead three nothing we're gonna listen to the Dayton Bombers Kids Club coming up after this break and it goes from <laughs> one extreme completely to the other and is it's just you know that, that's. You just kind of shake your head, <laughs> give it a good chuckle as you take a, a drink of
0: water, and you just realize that, you know, this is, this is a great job. So two things real quick. Uh, first one is a, more of a general question in hockey. Do you think the enforcer rule has gone away or disappeared? Oh, I At what level? You know, and, and that's
1: really the big question for me. The game at the highest level of the National Hockey League is so fast. It is. It is so fast. And the tempo is so high that they've basically taken it out itself. Um, the, at least the role of the enforcer. Um, you know, it's, it's not the 70s. It's not, you know, the, the Flyers are, you know, gooning everybody up because they're running traps Um, you know the game is so much faster the guys have to be able to keep up or they're you know they're not cutting rosters so guys that fight yeah I, i think most most hockey players that reach a higher level have had a couple scraps that can hold their own but you're not seeing the 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 big goons anymore and that's the reason for it so they can put whatever they want in the rule book at least in the national hockey league about you know enforcers and third man in and you know instigator which is the dumbest rule i've ever heard um but it it doesn't matter anymore because the game has left it behind Um, now that said there is a difference at least in my mind between the national hockey league and and the minor leagues and and the minor leagues are are there predominantly as entertainment for whatever town happens to support it that that's its business You know, a a lot of a lot of players come up through the minors and they're trying to work their way up. And that's that's really on the parent club now that that is making roster decisions for the minor league clubs, whereas the minor league clubs are selling tickets. And so there's a disconnect there.
0: Mm. And the other thing is this is going to sound awful, but one thing that I miss about broadcasting high school hockey are the (laughs) fights just because uh, uh, there's something about a fight that just you know feels so right in the sport. Well, you know, I,
1: I maybe I'll, I'll segue that into three parts. You know, I, I I was a proponent of fighting at all levels of hockey for a very long time, and and I felt it was a part of the game, and I and I still do to a certain level. I I don't think that you know the the extracurricular fighting, the roughhousing the hits after the whistle, just stuff like that has any place in interscholastic sports of any kind. Yeah. Um, you know, and and it's a shame that what I've seen the last couple of years is uh, high school hockey, um, at least in the Dayton Cincinnati area, has gone from, you know, a, a varsity um, – sport in a lot of areas to more and more of a a travel hockey mentality has started to creep in Mm. and and i've watched that firsthand last year when i came back into high school hockey after a, a pretty lengthy absence that there is a difference and there is more of a a scrappy less refined feel to it now that i think some people are starting to kind of counter and say, no, this is, you know, these are student athletes. This is, you know, you need to think of this more as, you know, college hockey light versus, you know, East coast league light. Uh, and and so it's a mentality change. And, and I think it's just, I could go on for hours about the, the the vacuum that was left after the gems folded and professional hockey left Dayton after the bombers folded, even for a lot of people that not having. Um, you know, professional hockey in the market for 10 years is really uh, what that has done to the sport at the amateur level that the kids don't have, you know, an easy access to watch high level professional hockey and and to emulate those skill sets and to see that, um, I think really makes a difference.
0: I understand that. And I'm not saying high school Needs to have fighting in it. I'm not saying that at all.
1: It's but you're just... just miss calling fights. See, that's yeah, the thing. You I'm just, not You gonna need lie to, you that. need to find somewhere <laughs> that you can call some fights. Uh, I, you know, uh, there. I got a couple guys in Springfield that play in the the Springfield Men's League that would love to to put on a couple Donnie Brooks for you on a Sunday <laughs> night. And you just. I, I know a couple of guys in Springfield, a couple of guys here in Troy, actually, would probably uh, stage a good fight for you. Uh, the girlfriends would be in the stands watching, so they'd get something out of it.
0: <laughs> Tell them to come on down to Centerville and we'll make that a date. <laughs> so I, I'm I'm glad you understood what I was getting at there. Oh, I do. I do. It's, it's all in good fun. Yeah. So let's talk about your tenure with the Dayton Bombers and Dayton Gems. How did you wind up with the ECHL squad?
1: It was uh, it was persistence more than anything. I think uh, that's it, it. It picks right up with you know what we were talking about. My early career, you know, I realized that's what I wanted to do. I spent you know three or four years with the local access channel doing high school hockey.
0: What were some of your favorite games and venues you got to see with the Bombers?
1: Oh, hands down, the, uh, the, the best experience for me. There's a handful of them. Uh, when I started with the Bombers, it was 2005, and at the time I was 19. So I was the youngest um, broadcaster in professional hockey. Um, which which is incredible to, to think about and I'm, I'm incredibly thankful for the opportunity to do that. Uh, I had been broadcasting local high school hockey um, here in Troy for a handful of years and I was practicing my craft and you know what what I didn't want to do to be a hockey player. I was more than willing to do to be a hockey broadcaster. And I realized that at that time where I was, um, you know, I was calling video games. I had an old PS2 with NHL 98 and I would put it in. And as I played or even I remember sometimes I would do autoplay and I would call the game as if I was a broadcaster. And, and uh, just those practicing moments gave me the opportunity so that when I did finally find a way in, I was prepared. And, and that was really the, the biggest thing that I really worked towards personally and professionally. Um, so I had been calling some high school hockey games. Uh, we had been doing radio at that point, some TV. We're getting, you know, five, 6,000 streams online for a high school hockey game, which in, wow. in 2005 is incredible, right? Absolutely. Um, and, and just doing all of this, and we've got multi-camera productions, and we've got graphics, and, you know, I'm, I'm learning sales at that point, selling some advertising for it. I'm going to a community college, you know, during the day. I'm doing this, really focusing that this is what I wanted to do at that point. That, um, you know, I had met the broadcaster of the Bombers. They came to Hobart in 2004 to play a game, uh, their first game at Hobart. Uh, when they were starting to have some issues with Wright State Uh, they played the game there I met up with their broadcaster him and I chatted and that summer is when Costa Papista and Don McAdam bought the team and I remember meeting both of them I went to the very first you know meet and greet I introduced myself I said you know this is I'd love to be a part of the organization you know I'd be willing to do pretty much anything just to sit in the booth with a headset on. Um, and I was able to meet the the broadcaster that was coming in. Uh, David Miller was a veteran broadcaster. Uh, you know, he had worked in Buffalo in the National Hockey League. He was extremely experienced in minor league hockey. Um, he came from Cleveland to the American Hockey League to come to Dayton because he was a veteran voice. Um, and so I got to team up with him. And, and that was an amazing experience for me um, to be able to to sit with him and actually see how a professional works. Because it's one thing to try and sort of figure it out yourself. You're calling some local high school games on a local station. You develop your own habits and your own prep ways. And then to see a guy that's been doing it professionally for almost 30 years is a completely different experience. The things that you learn and why you do certain things and how to communicate with a station and how to fit your brakes in and, and really learn how to be a professional is so important to me that there's no school, no class, no education, no degree could have provided me the useful practical information that I got that first season with the Bombers. Um, and, And it went so much further than the booth. Learned that the business also, if you wanted to be a broadcaster in professional hockey, you have to be a PR guy. Here's how you write a press release. You also are the guy that has to make the stat packet. And back then, that was before League Stat and Point Streak and all of these other things. I remember sitting in front of the computer at 7 in the morning on game day with David Miller in his office, and him and I would be in front of an Excel spreadsheet typing in stats from the last game. And that's how we built the stat sheet the first year. Uh, It's it's amazing, the, the experience that you get if you just ask. And that's the biggest advice I give to a lot of people uh, coming up. You know, what can I do to, to become a broadcaster? What can I do to get these jobs? How did you, um, you know, get in there? Well, first I asked, you know, I, I, I said, Costa, this is what I want to do can I, can I just kind of come? And I was just in it for a press credential, a hot dog and a pop. Honestly, I, I would, that's, I think that was my, my intern salary. I got to come to a, to a hockey game, sit and watch as much hockey as I could. I got a pop and whatever media food there. And I got to learn how to do what I wanted to do. Um, so that was huge. And then the, the, the big the big break, as they say, uh, came the day before Christmas in 2005. Uh, David Miller left the organization. Hmm. They didn't have a broadcaster, and they were hitting the road on the bus in less than 20 hours.
0: So they need to find someone, and hey.
1: So, uh, you know, I, I was in Cincinnati at the old Cincinnati Gardens calling a, a Troy High School versus Molar game and that was always a big rivalry hockey game so i'm at the gardens i'm up in the booth calling the game and I, I get a phone call between periods and it's costa and he says hey jt um we got uh we got some things going on uh, david david had to leave um and we were hoping you could come and meet with us tomorrow morning um and we'll, we'll talk then and i'm thinking well what well, what's this about? And sure enough, I, I went there that morning, and they said, you know, we know you're young, we know you're inexperienced, you've done a great job for us, we want you to to take over for a bit. Um, you know, they made it clear that it wasn't going to be a a, a full time you know opportunity just yet. I was still in school, and and that was important, but it was an opportunity to to really kind of get my beak wet a little bit into into that. That was uh yeah. It was it was a surreal experience for me uh to travel to Wheeling and and do my first professional hockey game on Boxing Day in two thousand
0: and five. That's a really cool story and I bet you have a lot of fond memories in Wheeling, West Virginia. Oh Wheeling
1: was an interesting town. <laughs> <coughs> that was oh buddy. oh. oh. That was, that was such a, such a crazy night for me. Um, You know, I'm a nervous wreck. Uh, I'm on the road. I've, I'm trying to set this equipment up because, you know, I, I I knew how to use the equipment, but when it's, it's just you and you're in the booth and, you know, all all of this stuff's going on, you know, your parents are listening and, and this is a, this is a big deal so there's there's a bit of nerves going on there, and then the the old uh, goal horn at uh, West Banco Arena went off before pregame and and I may have wet myself a little bit there. <laughs> I didn't realize how loud those things get <clears throat> any Any bombers fans there that have traveled to West Banco know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> so that that kind of took my mind off of it a little bit um, and and fortunately, you know the relationships you make at that level are, are so key and so critical. And, and the guys that work, you know, with the teams, when you're traveling on the road can make your life easier or they can make them a lot harder. And I'm so fortunate that, that in Wheeling at the time their broadcaster and PR guy was just the best I've ever met. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, we've, we've sort of kept in touch a little bit over through the years and, um, you know he he helped get my get my nerves and and my bearings in order that first night and you know it it's such a small world it was it was brendan burke at the time and, and a lot of people now know him as the uh the voice of the nhl on nbc sports network and and he's the tv play-by-play announcer of the new york islanders and then he's you know we we kind of had that shared commonality he was just a year or two into it i i was just getting into it and, and the people that you meet uh, you, you never know you know where it's going to lead from there
0: and you never know what's next for anyone as well i mean uh, also, can I ha- can I share a story that's very similar to the Wheeling goal horn sound?
1: Oh, that was amazing. I, that <laughs> I still still have flashbacks of that horn going off.
0: <laughs> I have all those Wheeling flashbacks. Um, so in high school hockey, a lot of the venues don't have their own goal horns, or if it's if they do, it's played off an iPad. <coughs> so I got to call Molar St. X down at where the Cyclones play, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: I, I forgot there's skull horns. So the first time it goes off, it's like, oh, <laughs> it was great. But oh, I I love that place. I mean, yeah, it might need a renovation, but still, that's a that's a nice barn for
1: hockey. Oh no, there's there's a lot of history in that building. I uh, was I was one of my favorite places to go. Uh, honestly, there were, there are were a handful of buildings that I really loved going to. I loved going to Cincinnati. Um, you know, it, 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 it is really one of the reasons why I became a broadcaster. You want to talk stories? Um, you know, I'm, I mean, we're just going to turn this into a full-on hot stove league here now, I think. Uh, but, no, it, it, was, it was exactly what we talked about earlier. You know, hockey's in my blood, and it's such a small world. Uh, my dad, you know, he, he played for the Stingers in Cincinnati for, you know, a, a hot minute. Uh, as a goaltender in the WHA, um, that was kind of one direction that he took. And, and he got called up and, and spent some time in Cincinnati, um, which is, I mean, that's that's amazing, honestly. Yeah. Um, just the odds of that and a and testament to, you know, his perseverance during his career. Um, so he played in that building, and that's that's one of the handful of arenas that I was able to work in that I grew up hearing stories from my dad about you know stories of going to Cincinnati and and staying there and playing in that building what it was like then and now you know here I am I'm I'm in the same building you know working you know not quite at the same level of league as the WHA was but you know it, it's it's still really cool to kind of sit there and, and i took lots of moments to myself just in commercial breaks or before the game where i would just kind of look around and say you know this is you know this is what it was for this is what i what i do but so yeah cincinnati always had a, a place in my heart um when uh, when i was really young before i before I decided I wanted to be a broadcaster, when I was still trying to figure out where I was going with it, uh, my dad would go down to Cincinnati, and he would uh, he would work with John Weineman mm. as a color analyst on WSAI, mm. uh, and then later uh, 1360 Homer when the Cyclones were in the IHL right. uh, back in the old the old I days. So we're talking 96, 97, 98. Um, so right after they had purchased the Coliseum and renovated it in 97, so Dad was going down to Cyclones games fairly regular as a fill-in uh, color guy on the Cyclones broadcast. And so, you know, occasionally I would get to tag along if I did my homework and, and stayed out of trouble. Hmm. Um, and I remember sitting up in the press box there at, at the Crown and then eventually First Star Center hmm. at the time uh, between John Weideman, who was the play-by-play guy, the Cyclones at the time, and and my dad. And I would put a headset on. John would always have a, a third headset for me, and I'd listen to the broadcast. And I was just absolutely taken aback at how incredibly talented he was hmm. and how I could close my eyes, even though I'm in the building, I could close my eyes, I could hear him, and I could see what was happening in my mind. And I knew at that instant that's what I wanted to do. And and that's what I eventually started to practice emulating. My style as a broadcaster is very – intentionally similar to John Weideman, who um, he's now the radio play-by-play announcer for the Chicago Blackhawks. Um, And he's been in Chicago for about 10 years. Uh, Hands down, the best hockey announcer there is. No question. And being able to be right there, listening to him call games at a high level, he was the one that taught how to call a fight, call it like a prize fight give people a a, a description of what's going on don't just say fight um really quick machine gun smooth crisp delivery and all it cost me was every intermission i had to go down into the uh into the bowels of the arena and get him one cup of of ice but then he would he would soothe his his throat with uh, after calling a period, and I just got a kick out of it. And just thinking back, all of these opportunities, um, it, it's just really surreal.
0: It's a really cool story. And also, before we continue yeah. on, you mentioned your dad cool. several times. Great guy, and I'm I'm happy to get to see him when uh, we uh, Centerville gets to play the Trojans.
1: Yeah, he always gets a kick out of it, too. I saw on Facebook, he wished you a happy birthday. I I, I caught that a day late. I apologize for that.
0: Oh, that's fine.
1: Oh, no, but he always speaks highly of you. Um, And we we loved having you a part of the the organization. And, you know, I I think what you've done, not just for hockey, but for, you know, sports and amateur sports here in in Dayton has been phenomenal. And and we're, we're behind you every step of the way, Lee.
0: I appreciate that. And there's a lot of love for the Zabo family in my heart. So, Now, you were the voice of the Bombers, and then the Bombers folded up shop eventually, and in came the Dayton Gems 2.0, which were part of the IHL 2.0, and the, what was it, the Central Hockey League, right? CHL?
1: Uh, yes. So they started in 2009 as an expansion club of the International Hockey League, um, which was essentially a rebranding of the old United Hockey League. Um, what had happened is the owner of the Fort Wayne Comets had just purchased outright all of the trademarks and names and all the, the branding, essentially, of the old International Hockey League that folded in 2000, uh, 2001, uh, and basically just rebranded their league. Um, and, and that's kind of what it was at the time. Uh, they needed some teams to play they were financing basically their own outfit they i guess they uh, from what i understand had some issues with some of the other leagues that were in existence um, thought they could go in alone um, and and that's what they did and they made a fairly decent run at it um unfortunately they they needed towns and they needed teams and When the Bombers folded, that opened up Dayton as a potential market for their club um, with an existing built-in fan base. I mean, at at the end, the Bombers were averaging just under 3,000 at the Nutter Center. Um, By single-A standards, you know, at the time, um, that's that's essentially what the the United League was. Um, You know, 3,000 would be an excellent crowd. So it, it was a definite um, business decision. The individuals that they found uh, to operate the team in Dayton, however, um, th- I think that's where they got into a bit of trouble, um, and it, it was uh, it was not a good situation. I don't feel um, with with how it was started um, to the point where. The second season is when that league decided, well, maybe we can't do it by ourselves, and they ended up being absorbed by the Central Hockey League. Um, At that time, then the new ownership came in as well, and that's – I can't say enough for what Kathy Rupp did. Um, There aren't a lot of people that realize how much – um, you know, not only sweat equity, uh, sleepless nights, and how much money was put into trying to save hockey in Dayton, um, trying to grow the sport of hockey in Dayton, um, and and I just don't think Kathy gets enough um, accolades. Which is, I, knowing Kathy, I'm pretty sure that's how she likes it. But it, it's it's important to know. Um, how hard she tried to save hockey and how much it meant to her, um, you know, w- with her husband, um, Pat, being such a legendary gem, 1960 gold medal winner for the Olympic team, just everything that you would you would look at and and be inspired by um it it was a it was a really valiant effort but i i think you know ultimately there were there were some fatal flaws and um not having a suitable building i think was was the was the big uh was the big one
0: it's a shame too i have a lot of fond memories with the gems 2.0 because that was uh, was that my first or second year as sports director we had a uh, couple deals where we make a couple radio ads and we gave away free gems tickets so that was always cool to make in the uh production studio so i always i always like doing that for the gems 2.0 and when they got the uh black jerseys as well when they had the fans vote on those i was so happy because that's the one i picked so
1: I mean, it wasn't for lack of trying. We, we there were, we weren't a, a big office, um, but we. I mean, there, there was certainly no lack of effort there, trying to, to do what we could. Um, I know the idea at the time. I think we're thinking hey, this was eleven, twelve season. Um, you know, where we'd have a giveaway every night. You know, something every night. And we we had some really fun ones. Um, uh, i'm thinking i don't know how many how many ones kind of kind of stuck but we had we had some good ideas um you know pr director of a minor league hockey team you know that could either be a pretty easy fun job or, or it can be uh stressful at times and and they kind of threw me in um after you know leaving the the troy bruins um when you know, the league disbanded. Uh, I, I came on board with the Gems um, as the PR director and then the broadcaster that last season. And the very one of the very first things I had to do was explain why the team wasn't being sued by Steve Bartman when uh, our president at the time, was a a bit of a Cubbies fan and thought it would be a a gas, I guess, to have a Steve Bartman night for our preseason game where we would give free admission to anybody dressed as the famous uh, Cubs foil um, Mm -hmm. for sports fans that know exactly who Steve Bartman is. Um, It also turns out that the man does not like being, uh, you know, shared publicly like that and and kind of mocked in a certain way so it was uh it was a bit of a rocky start there with the gems um but you know what that that, there was nothing more classic minor league sports than that i don't think and and boy we sure had a good laugh when we got that letter that says they weren't going to sue the team oh boy that was a we we, we had a good chuckle what a what a stupid idea that was uh, uh, let's let's think of something else uh, and and then we just got back to work you, um but still- it wasn't you know it wasn't for lack of trying we, we tried to think of zany off the-wall stuff and and a lot of it I think was pretty cool you know i I had the idea when I came in Hera didn't have any video capability mm-hmm Um, And when I came in, because growing up around here playing hockey, I grew up playing at Hera. Mm -hmm. I'd go to Bombers games at Hera, you know, and and you'd see those two big dot matrix boards on either side, flash messages and stuff. So I'm like, "Eh, at least we have that um, to play with. I'm thinking as a, you know, marketing PR broadcast guy, I come in. Nope, those don't work anymore. So we have no capacity to flash any kind of crowd messaging at all, which even in 2011 at a professional sporting event, you need something you do. Right. And so that uh, I think within a week I had ordered, secured and was having the arena install the video screen mm-hmm. and, and the projector. And, w- and we did that in pretty short order before the first game so that we would have something. Um, if nothing from a, just a fan involvement um, interaction. So, I mean, they, they were open to to trying a lot of things and, and trying to overcome what limitations that we had.
0: What were some of your favorite venues to go in the IHL 2.0 and the CHL? Oh,
1: you know, uh, it was so different. Uh, Each league was different. Um, You know, uh, the ECHL at the time when I was in it, the the late 2000s, it was still a lot of the smaller buildings. Um, Toledo Sports Arena, it's not there anymore. It was as old a building as you can get. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it, it was certainly not in good shape at the time. Um, and when you would walk in, it, it had an old-time hockey feel. It, it felt like Slapshot. It, it smelled like exam- Zamboni exhaust, stale popcorn, and urine. But it felt like old time hockey, right? Right. And and maybe that's what old time hockey smells like. I don't know. I'm too young <laughs> for that. But uh, but rinks like that. It was uh, Johnstown with the Chiefs. I loved going to Johnstown. By far, one of my favorite rinks ever, and and only for the fact that there's a lot of nostalgia there. Yeah. It, it it's it is literally Slapshot. It is where they filmed the movie Slapshot. And miraculously, even though they've updated the building, it still looks like it did in the movie Slapshot. Hmm.
0: It's just too bad they don't have a team anymore.
1: Well, they've got a team in the North American League.
0: Oh, that's right. That's right.
1: They do. But what, what was amazing about Johnstown to me was... The visitor radio broadcast booth was the broadcast booth up in the gondola that they used for Jim Carr's booth in the movie. Hmm. So the famous scenes of Jim Carr screaming at his microphone and of, you know, falling down the stairs and, you know, all of that was filmed. That is the modern day visitor's radio booth. And it looks exactly the same as it did in the movie. Hmm. So... Getting to call some games from Jim Carr's booth was a pretty big feather in in a young broadcaster's cap.
0: Let's move on to the Troy Bruins 2.0. You were the president of operations, or president of the organization, rather, excuse me. Um, And like I mentioned earlier, you were my boss the All American Hockey League year. What was it like bringing the Bruins to Hobart Arena?
1: Oh, it was stressful. It was it was stressful. It was uh, you know it, it was an effort. Um, you talk history, you talk nostalgia. There was an effort. Um, it was meant to be a, a development program. It was meant to be a junior team, um, and that and that's really what it was made for. It, it was um, designed for that. Unfortunately, it was also you know during the recession mm-hmm. that that played into it. Um, the team was created in, in 09. Um, so that, that was a big factor, I think, um, right from the get-go. Um, the fact that leagues were consolidating, changing because of the economic conditions of the country at that time, because hockey is seen as, as more affluent In terms of sport how expensive hockey can be to participate in Um, dwindles your numbers of participation anytime there's usually a recession which is also (laughs) something we're watching right now
0: yeah it's
1: um you know a, a lot of factors go into it uh the first season was as a junior team had some success um the league folds you know and and that's that's the thing that a lot of people unless they've been in the industry of professional minor league sports may not have as big an awareness of and and I, I say it like this because I, I get the question often still you know what happened well why why did the team go away well look at it this way if we started a restaurant the restaurant doesn't have to depend on on nine other restaurants to stay in business the restaurant can just do its thing make the best make the best meals do the best marketing it shows its tables and it's fine whereas in professional sports you could do all of those things your restaurant could be doing absolutely fantastic business but if the other nine restaurants you depend on don't have the same level of success. It doesn't matter. And so that, that's a real struggle for a lot of organizations that, you know, sometimes you could do everything right and still, still struggle. And, and ultimately I think that's, that's the story that we had here.
0: And then the second year that was the all American hockey league year. What was that like? (laughs)
1: That was I, I really think that was a, a grasp to keep hockey going mm. to keep hockey in Troy um, at that time the bombers had left. the gems were still playing in their IHL 2.0. Um, mm. There were news headlines at the time that the gems were going to fold. They didn't have funding. The league was on the verge of collapsing. So really, both teams were facing the same uncertain future. It, it certainly looked around 2010 that there wasn't going to be any hockey in in Dayton in any of the arenas. So, um, you know, the, the Gems ultimately found Kathy Rupp, and and that's kind of the direction that hockey took moving forward. Which, um, that's uh, that's the business they say.
0: Can you ever see a hockey team, professional or juniors, return to Hobart? No. And,
1: and, and I'll say this. When it comes to Hobart, it's a wonderful facility. Mm-hmm. And the money the city has put into the building on the back end I think Hobart arena itself is nicer in terms of behind the scenes facilities for dressing facilities, banquet rooms, offices, the back of the house stuff is better at Hobart arena now in Troy than most of the professional arenas I've ever been in.
0: Yeah. City of Troy really takes care of Hobart and It's always one of my favorite rinks to go to during a hockey season. It's, you you know, you, when you go inside, if you're looking at outside, you can't tell that it was the first hockey rink built in the fifties.
1: It's beautiful. And, and it's, it's beautiful and it has a tremendous amount of history. um, At, at, such a a high level of the game so many players came through troy that went on to play in the national hockey league in the 50s um that that they're still on the wall but the the reality of the market is different um the bruins at the time were able to put people in the stands in the 50s there were three channels on tv Mm -hmm. Um you know it, it, economics were a little different at the time Troy had the Hobart Brother corporation had Hobart manufacturing had all of these companies employment was huge um it, it was it was a different time to the point now where to put a a a team in Hobart that would require um surviving on gate receipts and marketing a the corporate dollars just aren't available in troy they're they're not um the corporate dollars um won't reach this far north and i think that's a that's a struggle people have uh to operate a minor professional hockey team right now you you have to spend at least a million dollars which is why some of these semi-pro leagues like the FHL are so attractive to certain individuals because it doesn't require the investment that a fully professional league does. So right off the bat, how do you justify the expense in the operating budget when you have a reduced capacity to obtain corporate advertising dollars? Gate is tough because you have a max capacity of 3786 in the arena how many seats you have on top of that there's no premium seating options so there's no suites there's no club house there's no um there, there's nothing that you can upcharge for it's all general admission seating uh Seating obstructions are another issue. It has the old beams that obstruct a couple hundred of those three thousand seven hundred and eighty six seats um so that's a concern right there and then the biggest the biggest issue I think is just the distance from the city center core, whereas Troy Ohio is a good forty five minutes, maybe more depending on traffic from where a lot of the um a lot of the money in the Dayton market is right now. You think where are you know where are the people with the disposable income? Yeah, there's some in Troy, there's some in Miami County, there's certainly some north, but a large percentage of the one million people in the Miami Valley are a, a fairly decent car drive away from Troy, and that is a, a bit of an issue when you're competing for entertainment dollars in such a saturated market. And and so I think all of those things right there work against having a team in Troy and I think the Bombers learned that firsthand because I know that was a serious consideration at one point to keep the Bombers around is to relocate to Troy until they could figure out an arena situation. So it's been considered and it just nobody's ever pulled the trigger for one reason. Than another, and and that's that's without even discussing the the dragon's effect. And this is something I talked about at length with the gems when I was with the gems. That ever since the dragons came into the market in 2000, it completely changed the perception of the average um, consumer. Let's say uh, sports attendee completely changed the perception on what a minor league sporting experience is, Mm. at least in the Dayton market. So you come in with a brand-new facility. It's clean. It's professional. It's well-lit. It's organized. You have this high-gloss presentation, the video board. There's a million different things for everybody to enjoy, and it's an experience unlike anybody had ever had before in the Dayton market. And so that completely taints the perception of people that then from then on go to a sporting event in Dayton. Ask anyone at UD. All of the whiz bang stuff they do, video board, scoreboard, stuff in halftime, that is stuff they have to do because there's an expectation for it. And and minor league hockey in Dayton and Troy cannot compete at that level without seeming like a little bit of a lesser product and we ran into that big time at Hera Hera compared to the same family can go to a dragons game for the same amount of money probably a little bit more money actually can go to a gems game at Hera and have a completely different experience you know, it's, and that's that's just that's just the reality of the market. That's that's just that's the business side of hockey in Dayton. That's it, right
0: there. Something I really I don't want to say never thought of, but that's those are solid points, and it does make me sad. And I hope that there's a chance for a new arena in the Dayton area, but we'll see. Well, I will say this.
1: Nobody wants to see it succeed more than me for obvious reasons that we've talked about, um, today in order for it to succeed, hockey needs to be away for a little bit longer. The market needs to cool. The market needs to reset probably whatever kind of impending economic situation our country is headed towards now needs to resolve itself long before anybody thinks about putting a new ice pad in date. Because in order for it to succeed, you now have to meet or exceed the standard that's been set now by the dragons. That's a new building. That's a quality, fully professional bonded league And that is a top-level funded professional organization from top to bottom that is going to cost some serious money to pull off. And anything less than that will never succeed.
0: It's a solid point. you got to put in a very, very shiny penny if you want to see it succeed here in Dayton.
1: And that's just it. And with all the upgrades to UD Arena, that just takes the bar even further now. That somebody – if I take my family to a sporting event, I expect a certain level of professionalism, a certain level on facilities, and a certain level of entertainment value for those dollars. Whether it's a, a mid-level college basketball game, whether it's a single-A wooden bat baseball game, it doesn't matter. The, the, the expectations are there now. And hockey – already struggles in some regards in perception in the Dayton market will have to meet or exceed that to be taken considerably seriously.
0: Now JT, is there any other sport that you never got to call that you'd like to one day? Ah, uh, done a lot of sports. I I when I was younger I had the
1: opportunity to just do as many as I wanted and, and really try and figure out what I liked. Um, and really, I, I, I think I've done all of the ones that I would want to do.
0: I mean, that's, that's a lot. Of maybe components.
1: water, maybe water polo. That could be fun.
0: Water polo is cool.
1: It's yeah. I, I, I'd, I'd like to learn how to describe how somebody is trying to drown their opponent. Uh, I think that would be humorous. <laughs> uh, I would, I would like to learn some vernacular for that.
0: Oh, uh, it's, it's like, wa- it's, I was going to call it water ball, but uh, it's volleyball and water. So <laughs> there's like, there's a couple high schools in Cincinnati that have it. I think Princeton and Mason are two that I know right off the bat, but yeah, that's, that's one sport I like to do one day too. So now what's cool about you, JT is you have your own local business. What's it like owning Zabo Entertainment?
1: It's awful lonely lately, Lee. It's, it's,
0: it's, it's, it's
1: uh, yeah, the uh, you know, we're, we're shifting gears from optimistic sports chat on the business of hockey to now sadness at the hands of the coronavirus. Yeah. Uh, but no, it, it, it's exactly what you think. It, uh, the last couple of years, uh, I've been fortunate enough to, to be a stay-at-home dad to our kids, Um, which is really important to me to be able to do. Uh, And without going crazy, I was able to, you know, start my own entertainment live event um, and DJ business. Um, Just going back to the old school days of being the AV geek, I suppose. um, So a lot of weddings and school dances and community events and fundraisers, stuff like that. Just, just getting out and, being with people and playing some music and being in front of the microphone, acting goofy and just having fun. Um, and then, and then the lockdown hit, and then the virus hit, and now all of a sudden we're seeing some real significant paradigm shifts in how people are getting together and how they're celebrating things. And and it's really, I'll, I'll be honest, it's, it's completely wiped out my business at this point, to the point where. You know, even people that are having weddings, it's changing behaviors now. So, you know, and, and long story short, I started to see some some changes to the industry just in the last couple of years. Um, a lot of people are just deciding that, hey, this technology allows us to do it ourselves. Um, brides and grooms are now creating their own Spotify playlists with all of their guests and playing that at weddings. Now um, most weddings that I've done in the last two years, people aren't doing the traditional stuff. They're not doing garter tosses. They're not doing bouquet tosses. They're not doing all of this stuff. So more and more of the younger couples are opting. Well, let's get a couple speakers and we'll set up Spotify and we'll just, we'll just hang out with family and friends. So that's, that's changing my business now. So how do I adapt to that? And the last couple of weeks is, has been, been kind of a, a business challenge. And, and I like that, um, on figuring out where to go from here.
0: Let's, uh, let's talk more positively. Uh, how about some of your favorite things about sports locally?
1: Um, uh, haven't watched a whole lot lately. Um, <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I, I'm I'm at the point now where uh, I look at reports and articles on you know the National Hockey League trying to save their season, um, NBA trying to play at Disney World, and and I'm thinking it's uh, just no. I mean nobody wants to watch hockey more than me, mm-hmm. but at at a certain point you need to cut your losses, and I think what this whole last couple months has taught us is that, you know, we've, we've been through so much and there's so much up against these leagues that I really think from both a fan perspective and a business perspective, let, let's, let's take a timeout. We've already done that. Let's make sure everybody's healthy, which it seems like everybody is in, in these leagues, and let's really plan – for the first time, and we have a tremendous opportunity, and I I don't know why I say we, Uh, sports leagues across the world have a tremendous opportunity that I don't think most of them have ever had, and that is time. And there's so much logistics that go into running these leagues, even minor leagues, that to have an extra couple months where you can really sit down and figuring out how can we provide the best product, on the field, on the ice? How can we enhance our rules to make the game safer? How can we figure out how we can partner with our communities better and have the time to actually go out and do it and not have to be focused on putting on a show? And I think the the real emphasis is in the wrong place. Everybody just wants to hurry up and get back to the status quo. When I think we have a real responsibility and an opportunity here that only comes around once in a lifetime to really stop, pause, and contemplate and make our sports better, make our sports safer, and, and make them a better value for the fans. And, and that's what I'm, I'm just not seeing right now.
0: Tag teaming into that thought, what would you like to see in the future of Dayton sports and media?
1: Hockey, (laughs) honestly. Um, And and I don't mean professional hockey specifically. Uh, I think um, the growth of amateur hockey is something that needs to happen. I think the growth of high school hockey is something that needs to happen. Um, I'd love to see the University of Dayton get a varsity hockey team. Why not? I, I'd love I'd love to see the sport grow in importance again to the level that it hasn't been in quite some time. Um, I'd also like to see more cohesiveness um, between the the sports organizations. I, I think Dayton and Cincinnati particularly has a rich sports history that I think could be leveraged better either by some media platforms or or something. But I mean, most people are getting their local sports coverage from just a handful of outlets. There's really no major broadcast of any local sports that you can find on t v Everything either comes from major league Cincinnati or columbus um and and I think there's there's a lot of opportunity out there for for just the right thing
0: i I totally agree on that, and also hockey too. Um, you know. What high schools would you like to see ad hockey? Because Hobart Arena is really used by Troy, and I know there's not a lot of big school districts in Miami County, but y- y- you think there's got to be one or two teams that could possibly make a nice run at high- uh, ice hockey.
1: It's really, in Miami County, Troy's the only one that's viable, um, I think. And and ultimately, it comes to where are you getting your player talent pool, um, which is is different for hockey than other sports. Um, Every town has basketball courts. Every town has ball fields. Every town has soccer fields. Every school has a gym. And so basketball, baseball, and football – and, and soccer, I'll include soccer in that, um, are ubiquitous. And by that I mean every town, every school has a talent supply. There are kids in every town, every neighborhood that are kicking soccer balls, that are shooting free throws, that are throwing spirals. And so schools can just tap into that potential, that, that pipeline. Whereas with hockey, how many ice rinks are in Dayton? Lee there's South Metro there's Kettering there's Hobart uh there's Springfield. that's it um, oh in in Springfield I'm sorry Springfield so four yeah, that's it that's it four four how many high schools are there in the Miami
0: Valley Lee how many high schools in the Miami Valley a lot more than I can count
1: exactly I could tell exactly. you exactly no 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 I don't I don't need a number that was that was the point so the talent pool Okay now I'm not saying that all the kids that play hockey in Troy are from troy they're not there's there's players from all over but in order to tap into that talent supply you need to have uh, a well and and occasionally people come from all over to that well to drink from that sport and th- and that's what ice drinks are in my in in the Miami Valley. Um, a lot of those players that they want to play at a high school varsity level, a, a real varsity level will, will transfer to Troy or we've had multiple families move to Troy specifically to play varsity hockey. And, and so that's the difference, um, you know, and, and the, the people that don't feel comfortable transferring or don't want to move schools there, there are, you know, there are travel options, there's the stealth. They offer a midget team that they call a high school team, which is great for kids that can't really play real varsity. It gives them something. Um, but, you know, there's only so many places that can support a program because then you you still need to be somewhat close to your um, your school for fan support, for sponsorship dollars, for logistics, for busing. Mm. Um, so it, it's not like someone from Germantown could set up shop and play in Troy. They're just logistically could not work. So that, that's a real challenge, is just available ice time, which is why we see an explosion in Columbus, because now I think they're up to 13, 14 ice rinks in Columbus now?
0: Something like that. They have close to 20 high school teams up there not counting exactly youth, youth hockey so so that's that's a real challenge
1: here here in this area
0: can you believe that it's better in dayton than cincinnati just because cincinnati has three sheets of ice not counting um heritage bank i was going to call it hickory bank what what's wrong with me
1: I kind of like Hickory Bank, Hickory actually. Bank. Uh, the Coliseum. We'll just call it the Coliseum. The the fun crown. fact: my my very first concert ever was at the Riverfront Coliseum. It was Garth Brooks.
0: Garth Brooks.
1: And that's before the Cyclones bought it and converted it, so it still had the old uh, multicolored seats. And oh. oh yeah, that's before they put in the clock. Yeah, that was my first time in that building. Glorious.
0: I just three sheets of ice in Cincinnati though. That's, that's heartbreaking. And I know well, the gardens didn't help. You know, because- I, had, I
1: had a guy tell me once um, he's Canadian, so, you know, he's trustworthy. Right. Yeah. So he, he told me, he told me once he said, listen, guy, that's how we talked. Uh, he said, listen, guy, ice drinks don't make money. At least they don't down here. And so, and so that's a guiding principle. They don't make money. So it, it's hard to justify unless it's a municipality or, or someone that just has an abundance of love and, and uh, a lacking of financial understanding <laughs> <laughs> that, that you know, they're, they're supposed to just operate these buildings. I mean an electric bill could be over $30,000 a month for one ice rink i mean it's it's substantial Mm. um so it's yeah there's there's a lot of things so we're just very fortunate for the facilities that we do currently have
0: what was i gonna say oh oh, i have to pay for water and i have to pay for it because it's frozen ah (laughs) jt how can people follow you and your work on social media uh well,
1: right now Zabo Entertainment has a, a Facebook page and an Instagram page. Uh, you can just search for Zabo S Z A B O Media or or Entertainment, um, and it will it will pop up. Um, in the process now of creating some personally branded stuff, um, as I kind of look at some options on where the entertainment business goes, so there there may be. Uh, some some personal stuff here coming in the next couple weeks but it's just everything's still so far up in the air right now i just uh you know uh, i appreciate the opportunity to chat with you and and provide some i hope interesting insight and some stories to your listeners
0: jt if i didn't think it was going to be interesting i wouldn't have invited you on well i
1: appreciate it lee
0: it was a lot of fun talking hockey, uh, JT, and let's do it sometime soon. And hopefully we have, uh, we have a hockey season uh, in 2020, 2021. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. And that will do it. That is episode 158 of the Cincinnati and Dayton Sports Podcast. And we'll talk to you again for episode 159. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Cincinnati and Dayton Sports Podcast with Lee W. Mowen. To subscribe to the podcast, please visit the slash podcasts. From there, you can choose your favorite platform, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, and many more. Interact with the podcast and host on Twitter at the theleewmowen.com and at Sunday pod like the Facebook page, the Cincinnati and Dayton sports podcast and download the free flick chat app. Then search for the local Sunday sports group to submit your future Mowen's mailbag questions. The closing theme is lights go down by Dan Hennig provided by the YouTube music library collection. This is Lee W. Malin, and I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast Please join me again next week on the Cincinnati and Dayton Sports Podcast.